This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. In my previous church, I was responsible for starting up new Bible study groups. So when I left uh, that church to come to BDPC, I handed over the leadership of these new groups to other people. Now, it was really disappointing because uh, many years later, I bumped into some of the people who were in my old group, and to my great shock, they were no longer in the group. And to my greater shock, the group has actually disbanded. And to my even greater shock, the people who used to be in my group were no longer in church at all. Now, how did this happen? Well, it sort of happened because as people left one by one and couple by couple, it seemed that this, no one actually bothered to follow them up. No one called them up. No one WhatsApp them. No one SMS them. And over time, uh, they just drifted off to the four corners of the Singapore and they never went back to church. Now, I think that this is something wrong. Right? This is something wrong. It shows that there's something wrong with the way Christians relate to one another. It shows there's something wrong in the way that relate, uh, Christians treat one another. And that's the heart of today's passage. Now, it begins uh, in chapter 5, verse 12, with these words, Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or, or by earth or anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned. So this section begins with above all. Above all is like a summary in conclusion. Now, if it was you or me, if we were writing the book of James and we said above all, we may be tempted to say above all, flee from sexual immorality or above all, flee from greed. The last thing that we kind of think of is, you know, flee from the sins of the tongue. And actually, the sins of the tongue have been one of the central issues facing the Christians that were the recipients of the book of James, right? So, if you look up here, in James chapter 3, right, it says, Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world full of evil. Among the parts of the body, it corrupts the whole person, sets the course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. So as we've been going through the book of James, we've seen that there are many sins of the tongue. Uh, slander, gossip, anger, boasting, grumbling. And today it deals with the last one, which is swearing. Now, swearing is not like cursing, right? Swearing is where you make an oath. And in the ancient world, as in today, people make oaths. You know, I swear by my mother, I will do this. I swear by my life, I will do this. But effectively... What you're really saying is the times that you don't swear means that your word doesn't count as much. You are less likely to keep your word if you don't swear. And in the ancient world, that was very true. So if you look at the words of Jesus here, uh, Jesus in Matthew chapter 23 said, Woe to you blind guides! You say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the goal of the temple, he is bound by his oath. So, in the world of the ancient world, in the world of modern Singapore, in fact, of all time, we know that generally 
people have trouble keeping their word. So in the court of law, right, the next slide, you know that in Singapore as well as many parts of the world, before you give your testimony, they make you swear on a holy book. Now what is that telling you? It tells you that the judges, the courts, recognize that people don't always tell the truth and they make you swear on a holy book in a hope that it discourages you from lying. Now obviously, if you're some mafia or triad person, it's irrelevant, right? You still lie, whatever. But it recognizes the reality that in the world that we live in, people don't mean what they say and they don't say what they mean. They don't keep their word. And that's very true in our experience. Maybe the young people don't experience it. But you know, if you ever get a place and you get a contractor, right? You know, you have to itemize everything. You know, this one costs how much money? This one costs how much? This material you must buy. This paint you must buy. It must finish by a certain date. If you don't finish by a certain date, I mean, that's why you have lawyers, right? But still, they don't keep their word. You've got it written down. You've got it signed off. But you still can't get what you promised. And that's the way the world is. But for us as Christians, we must keep our word. We must mean what we say and say what we mean. So Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, which we read uh, just a moment ago, right, that you've heard it said, it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made the Lord to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now if you notice, the next slide, Jesus' words are summarized in James chapter 5, verse 12. It's actually almost exactly the same. Don't swear by anything. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Keep your word. Anything more comes from the evil one and you will be condemned. Now, what it means is that as Christians, especially when we talk to one another, and in the outside world, we must speak and mean what we say and keep our word. Now, unfortunately, that's not always true among Christians. And it's such a stark contrast, right? Because the last thing that James says is, above all, keep your word. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. But that's not a priority for us today. Neither was it a priority for the people in the past. Now, I remember, you know, I've, I've spoken to Christians who've gone into business together. And unfortunately, they break their promises. I remember speaking to a missionary from Vietnam who came to visit Singapore a couple of weeks ago. And he was sharing about how disappointed he was because many of the Vietnamese Theological students who go overseas to study, say to Australia or to America, they never come back. They say they're going to come back, they're supported by their church, they're supported by people, but they don't come back. Why? Because it's inconvenient to keep your word. You know, after you enjoy life overseas, you don't want to go back to Vietnam. But what God is saying here is that we must, we must keep our word. We must mean yes when we say yes. And when we say no, we mean no. Many years ago, I was helping to organize a joint church camp with another church. And uh, the church camp commandant from the other church said to me, Okay, we will give you X amount of rooms for your church. 
About one month before the church camp began, he said, Oh, I'm so sorry, you know. The turnout has been a bit better than we expected from our church. I can't give you X number of rooms. I can only give you Y number of rooms, which is less. And I then spent one hour on the phone with this person saying, But you can't do that. You promised me X number of rooms, so you need to keep your promise. And in the end, he said, Okay, okay, I'll give you X number of rooms. But the fact that you have to spend one hour convincing a Christian person to keep their promises shows you how little our words really mean. And that's not the way it should be. It should be that as Christians, when we say yes, we mean yes. We say no, we mean no. And anything else is a sin and to be condemned. Now the passage then goes on. And we should pay attention to this because this is one of the most controversial passages in the whole Bible. It says, if, is anyone among you in trouble, in verse 13, let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and to anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Now, obviously, these are very controversial words, but let's start with the easy part. What is the main idea of this passage? What's the word that keeps being repeated? Prayer. Right? Keep praying. And the structure is very simple. Pray for yourself. Let the elders pray for the sick. Pray for another. Very straightforward structure. Let's start with the first part. It says that, you know, when you're in trouble, you should pray. But the trouble here is not trouble with the law, right? It's in trouble generally. In chapter 1 of James, it's being persecuted, suffering for being a Christian. When you're suffering, when you're in persecution, when life is tough, pray. When you're happy, pray. Sing songs of praise. Now, I think that covers all of life, don't you? Trouble and happy. When life is not troublesome, you're happy. When life is troublesome, you're sad. So when you're happy... You must remember to pray to God because the problem is that we generally only pray to God when we have trouble. Right? When you have trouble. It's like, you know, the night before your exam, you realize you left it too late, too much to study, you don't understand it, or you, you studied and suddenly you can't remember what it means anymore. You pray to God. Right? You, 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 know, you, you pray with desperation. But you know when you get your results and you did really well? You don't sing songs of praise to God. It's all because, you know, you studied really hard. This passage says that the whole of life must be given over to God in prayer. When you have trouble, pray. When you're happy, give thanks. It's a bit like last week's passage. You know, when you're poor, when you're hungry, you remember God. But when you're rich, you're tempted to forget God. And I think this is the same situation here. When you are in trouble, you remember God. But when you are happy, the temptation is you forget God. So here it says, you know, pray at all times. Now the next section is the difficult part, the controversial part. Verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well and the Lord will raise them up. Now this is really controversial. 
But let's start with the beginning. It says that if someone is sick, very straightforward, you call the mature Christians in the church to come and pray for you, anoint you with a bit of oil, and that's it. Very different from the reaction that we have today, right? My mum, when she had cancer, a well-meaning friend took her to someone's house. She waited for three hours. She was very tired. At midnight, this person who had the gift of healing came and prayed over her, laid hands on her, and then she went home. My father-in-law in KL, the same thing when he was sick, also with cancer, someone brought him to a healing service. My sister, who is handicapped, also goes to healing services. In every one of those situations, it's always you go to a special person, a healer, a special event, a healing service, and there are special things done to you. In this passage, it seems like everything is very ordinary. You know, you invite someone to your house, your very ordinary house. You invite an ordinary person, a mature Christian, come and pray over you. And uh, that's it. They give you a bit of oil. But the power is in the prayer, not the oil. You know, if it was in the koyok, right? Then they would say, don't worry about the prayer. Just put the oil over him, right? Or the her. Just get your Hongyu, your X brand oil, put it over them and they'll be fine. But it's the power is not in the, in the oil. The power is in the prayer. And that's why if you look at the passage, it says, anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. The oil was probably some olive oil or normal oil. And it was just a, a symbolic religious thing to show that the person had been prayed over. Now, the problem that we struggle with now is in verse 15 onwards. What is the bottom line? How effective is that prayer? Does it actually bring results? Can it heal? Now, when you look at the passage, if you look up here on the slide, the two main words which we really struggle with is make the person well. Raise the person. The problem that we have is does it mean physically well or spiritually well? Raise the person from the dead or raise the person from his or her sickbed? The Original word can have both meanings. They're ambiguous, right? So the next slide, the word... Oy, no, we move too fast. Uh, okay, next one? Ah, hey, no. Okay, this one, good, good. Stay here. Just locked in. Okay? The word well, in the original language, can literally mean spiritually well. So, in Matthew chapter 1, she will give birth to a son and you will give him the name Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. The same word, he will make them well from their sins. In Mark chapter 6, verse 56, wherever Jesus went, into villages, towns or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak and all who touched him were, they were made well, physically well. So the word well can mean physically well, spiritually well. The word raise, the next slide, raise him up, is the same thing. It can be used in a sense of raising someone from his sickbed or her sickbed, or raise that person up eternally to life. 
So in Matthew chapter 5, it said, Then Jesus said to the paralytic, Get up, or be raised. Take your mat and go home. And the man got up. He was raised up and went home. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14, it says, With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. Now, how do we then decide to make what to make of James? Physical wellness, spiritual wellness, raised from the dead, raised from the bed. How do we decide? Well, the way we decide is, how do we understand reading the Bible? The first principle of reading the Bible is, if something is unclear, then refer to other parts of the Bible which sort of give us some clarity into the unclear passage. So as we read the rest of the Bible, do we see that this sort of prayer guarantees that people will be physically well? Do we see cases where when people pray, there's an expectation that there will be complete healing? So if you look here, the Apostle Paul, right? Next slide. God afflicted him with a thorn in his flesh. We don't know what it is. Some people say it's migraine. Some people, nobody knows. Paul prayed to God three times, but God did not heal him. So 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it says, To keep me from becoming conceited, because of these surprisingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. Okay, so then we also read about Timothy. Timothy was like Paul's associate minister. And Timothy was very sickly. Stop drinking only water. Use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. He was sick all the time. Didn't seem as if he was made well when Paul prayed over him. And again, Paul left Trophimus sick in Miletus and he had to travel on. So as we look in scripture, it doesn't seem as if the prayer of a faithful, righteous person guarantees physical healing. The second principle is context. So when you read the Bible, what is the context of that book? We've already read in chapter 1 that we are meant to endure healing. Sorry, not endure healing. Endure suffering, right? Endure suffering. Chapter 5, remember, we're supposed to be patient when we suffer. So the context doesn't make sense if you're supposed to endure suffering, be patient in suffering, and then chapter 5, you pray and suddenly you're released from all physical suffering in terms of sickness. And I guess in terms of our own experience, it's true. Right? We come to church, we pray for one another, but there's no guarantee that we are well. So let me ask you a question. In the last week, how many of you have taken medicine? In the last month, how many of you have taken medicine? Right. In the last year, how many of you have taken medicine? All of us take medicine, right? If chapter 5 was saying that all we need was prayer, then we don't need medicine anymore. Every time you're sick, you just call a mature Christian to pray for you, you will get well. Don't need medicine anymore. But it doesn't seem to be the case from Scripture, the context, or our own experience. 
So then how do we understand this passage? Now it's very important, okay, because I've had more than once uh, some person come to me and say, oh, you know, I've got cancer or I've got this problem and my church says that I should be better, I should be healed and the only reason I'm not healed is because I don't have enough faith. Now that's very unloving. But not only is it unloving, it's unbiblical. Because this passage is not saying that just because someone prays for you, you must be cured. It is not what this passage is saying. So what is this passage saying then? Okay, I think the clue comes in the end of 15 and 16. Right? If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Now you notice here that there is one certainty. If the person has sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. So the certainty of prayer and confession is forgiveness. The maybe is healing. And I think this makes the most sense of this passage in which it's actually moving more from physical healing and saying what's really in view here is spiritual healing being raised from the dead because forgiveness is the one thing that is promised. Now, if you look at this passage, the main commands here are confess your sins to one another, pray for one another. That is what we are meant to do for one another. And I think this is a very important lesson for us today because we are so individualistic in our view of our faith. The church is not a Bible tuition center. Right? And the church is not a uh, spiritual recharge station. Right? You know, Some people feel, I come to church, I sing the songs, I feel really recharged, right? It's not a Bible tuition center and neither is it a spiritual recharge station. It is a place where we come together in community and we care for one another by confessing our sins to one another and praying for one another. Now I remember, and I'm sure for you guys as well, if you've ever sinned, you feel very heavy inside. So much so that you may actually feel physically unwell. I felt that way before. When I've sinned, I feel very bad for myself. I feel very down. But what helps for me is when I seek out someone that I trust, a, a brother or sister, and I mean not a brother or sister in Christ, but a brother in Christ, and I share with that person my, my sin, that person cares for me, prays for me, reassures me, and I feel much better. My reassurance of forgiveness comes back. I feel spiritually revived. I'm raised up spiritually. And physically I feel much better. Physically I'm raised up. And that's what this passage is really saying. There is no guarantee of physical healing. But there is a sense in which when we come together and confess our sins and pray for one another, there is a guarantee of forgiveness. Spiritual raising up. Spiritual healing. And that's why sometimes I think we shouldn't call our Bible study groups Bible study groups. Because it gives you the wrong impression that all you come to do 
is to study the Bible and then go home. Because really, the, the, the coming together as a Bible study group is more than just studying the Bible. It's coming together so that you build up relationship and trust one another, so they're able to confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. And that's why we encourage people to do one-to-one. You know, sometimes people uh, tell me, oh, I have relatives of mine as well. They say, oh, I, I go to church late, and then I leave early, so I don't have to get caught in the car parking rush. Right? And I'm thinking, you're kind of like missing the purpose of church, right? Because church is, church is about community, right? It's not a DIY thing, right? My own spiritual growth. Church is about community where we come together and build up relationships so that we can help one another. And one way we help one another is to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. So very sadly, one of my best friends from university who was a Christian, he was actually a Christian before me, he um, got divorced a little while ago. And part of the reason was he started watching pornography and then he started visiting prostitutes and then in the end he got divorced. I asked him, I said, you know, how did this happen? I've known you for so many years, right? And he said that he thought that he could fix the problem himself. That was what he said to me. He thought that I could do it, I could solve the problem myself. But if you look at James chapter 5, it doesn't work that way. You don't solve the problem yourself. You go to other people, you confess your sins to them, and they pray for you, and then you, you help one another solve the problem. And I'm sure if my friend had gone to someone he trusted, confessed his sins to that person, if that person had prayed with him, continued to care for him, he wouldn't be where he is today. So I think this is the principle by which we understand this passage. It's not so much about physical healing, but about healing one another spiritually, raising up one another in terms of our understanding of our forgiveness before God. Now, at the end of 16b, it says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, the earth produced its crop. Now, if you don't know Elijah, it's because you haven't been to Sunday school, right? Because Elijah is the most visually uh, powerful of the Old Testament prophets. So, you know, I've been to children's church, I sat there before. You know, Elijah was the guy, he prayed and he fought against the 450 prophets of Baal. And God sent fire from heaven. He ignited the sacrifices even though they were soaked with water. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Yeah, okay. Right? Elijah raised the widow's son. He prayed and the widow's son was raised up. Elijah also prayed and there was a famine. And then he prayed and the rain came. So the question that many commentators ask is, why did James not quote from the other two miracles, the great miracles that Elijah did? If you wanted to show the power of prayer, wouldn't it be better to talk about God sending fire from heaven to ignite 
the, 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 the water-soaked sacrifices. If you want to talk about healing, why not talk about Elijah healing and raising the widow's son from dead? Why talk about the miracle of famine and then rain? Well, if you come with me to 1 Kings chapter 17, right? It says that now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe from Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel is, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Now why did the rain and the, the, the famine come? So earlier on, God had said, when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray towards this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you've afflicted them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land you gave your people for an inheritance. You notice here that the famine and the rain are not so much about just famine and rain. Why did the famine come? The famine came because the people sinned. So Elijah prayed and there was famine. The people then turned back to God and Elijah prayed and there was forgiveness. The rain came. So what was Elijah like? Elijah wasn't so much an example of someone who could pray for famine and rain. So we should pray for famine and rain. But Elijah was a person just like you and I who prayed for forgiveness and God granted forgiveness And that's seen by the coming of the rain. So what this passage is saying here is when we pray for one another, we are like Elijah. We are praying for forgiveness for one another. Now, the passage goes on in verse 19 to 20. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Now, we use the same language today. We say, oh, you know, that person has wandered away. But here it says the person has wandered away from the truth. Within the context of James, what does it mean? What does it look like to wander away from the truth? Well, uh, people who... Gossip, people who used their tongue in anger, people who boasted, people who didn't know how to handle their riches and were not generous and were self-indulgent, people who had faith but no deeds, people who couldn't keep their word. These were all people who were wandering from the faith. And James says that other Christians were responsible to chase after these wandering Christians and bring them back to the truth. Now this is something which is very different from the individualistic way that we think of our own faith. So I remember talking to someone and I, you know, and they said, oh, you know, ah, this person is sinning. 
But I don't really want to go and talk to them, you know, because, you know, it's kind of like their own business. And somebody else is telling me, oh, you know, I don't like people telling me that I'm doing wrong things. I don't like people judging me. But if you look at this passage, actually, we are responsible corporately and community for each other. When you see someone wandering away from the truth, you, you have to speak to them and say, hey, brother, sister, the way you use your tongue, you know, not very godly, not based on faith. You know, you've got to come back to the truth. The people wandering from the truth were not changing their Facebook to atheists, right? Agnostic. They were, they were just not living out their Christian life. And we have a responsibility to go to help people who are wandering away from the truth and bringing them back. And the same way, when people come and give us helpful rebuke, we should be confessing our sins and we should be praying together so that we would actually come back to the truth. It's a bit like, you know, imagine at the HDB flat, right? your friend decides to hop onto the wall and decides to walk on the wall, right? And you're like, ah, you know, I don't think that looks very safe. I don't really want to judge him. Of course you will, right? You say, hey, get off there. It's really dangerous, right? But the stakes as Christians are even higher. It's not that they're just going to fall off the eighth floor and die, right? They're actually going to die and to be judged and eternally judged. So if you see your friend walking towards the cliff, then we have a responsibility to go and to help them. And the person who's walking towards the cliff also should be open to saying, yeah, maybe... I need to confess my sins and be prayed over. So as we look at this passage, I want to talk about my friend again. My friend was a very busy man. He was a very successful uh, business person. And unfortunately, he was very busy at church too. He was an elder at church. right? And he was very busy doing all sorts of things and all the other people in church were very busy. But they weren't busy doing what was important. They weren't busy looking after one another's spiritual health. I mean, maybe he was busy doing the finances, busy playing music, or busy uh, leading Bible study, but they weren't busy looking after one another spiritually. They weren't raising up one another spiritually. They weren't healing one another in a spiritual sense. They weren't asking one another, how are you going in your spiritual life? They weren't confessing their sins to one another. They were not praying for one another for forgiveness. If we looked at this passage, we need to see that coming together as a community of believers is not about filling our minds with knowledge. It's not about recharging ourselves spiritually, but it's about caring and loving for one another, you know, praying for one another, confessing our sins to one another. So in the, on our journey, spiritual journey, we continue to stay faithful uh, to Jesus Christ and we never lose Jesus Christ. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Okay, dear Father, as we come before you today, we ask that we will speak to one another, keep our words, we, our yes will be yes and our no will be no. We pray that we will keep praying when times are good, we will sing songs of praise. When times are bad, we will come to you in prayer. We pray also 
that we will, whether in sickness or in health, continue to confess our sins to one another, that we will come together to pray for one another with the assurance that forgiveness will come, that we will be made spiritually well, that we will be raised up spiritually. We pray that indeed if we are sick or unwell, that we may be healed if it is your will. Lastly, dear Father, we pray that we will be those who when we see one another wandering from the truth, we will be those who would go after them to bring that person back. And that we will be given the assurance that when we do so, it will bring that person back from the dead and will cover over a multitude of sins. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.